Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome to another episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. In this episode, we hear from Anthony Malevsky, who is the former founder and CEO of Cobalt 27. The deal alone is worth an episode, but in this interview, we go much further and wind through a number of different topics. I joked around with Anthony that he's a contender to receive an award for being the most interesting man of the world. And in our interview, he takes us from his early days growing up in Eastern Washington state to the beginnings of his legal and finance career in Russia. It was there that he gained exposure to international mining and energy deals. We then discussed the transition of the USSR to become the state capitalist system that Russia is today. Anthony makes the point that Russia is still highly misunderstood by the West. And coming back to his work with Cobalt 27, there's no shortage of articles and opinions about the deal that by no means are flattering to Anthony or the life cycle of that company. So I asked him to share his side of the story. He brings us back to the first memo with the team at Palo Investments and about when they made their first purchases of actual physical cobalt and their foray into the electrification metals. He then explains how the growth of the deal happened and the financings that came from it. We go on to discuss the value of retail investors as well and how digital marketing is changing how we engage them. Investors relations has changed and there's a scalability of digital engagement that can't be achieved by traditional IR programs. And now there's a ton to learn from this interview, but also a telling conversation about the career of a very interesting individual. And as a final note, I want to say thank you to Dylan Berg at Digital 257 for making this introduction. It's very much appreciated. Enjoy the show. On the line, I have Anthony Maluski, who's now the chairman of Conic Metals. And, you know, we've got, a, I think we've got a great discussion ahead of us. Anthony, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks a lot for having me today. You know, something that I don't think is reported much on is the career that you've had. And I wanted to start off with a bit of an elevator pitch about yourself, a bit of a brief on who you are and, and your career, but then also drive into some of you know how you got to where you are, and then we can talk more about the deals and the metal opportunities you're pursuing. But what do you say you start off with a bit of a, a brief on yourself? Sure. So uh, I'm from Eastern Washington, small town in rural Eastern Washington called Kennewick. I grew up there, went to high school, grade school, middle school. You know, I always liked two things, the outdoors and markets, strangely enough. And so you know, those have manifested themselves in my career over time in different ways in different places. And so I would say that's the starting point. You know, I studied Eastern European and Russian history, Russian language, you know, from there went on and did a law degree, a joint degree with a master's degree in international studies, and then um, was a Fulbright scholar in Russia, and then did an LLM in Russian finance. So, you know, the kind of taken a roundabout path into resources, but ultimately, I think what got me into resources was markets. And 
you know, my first job out of graduate school was for Skadden Arps, and that was as a lawyer. And I was going to go to New York, and then they asked me to go to Moscow, where almost 100% of the deal flow that I worked on was oil and gas and coal and gold and copper. And so even from the very beginning, my interest in markets, which led me into Eastern Europe, ultimately brought me into the mining sector and, and to a lesser extent, the energy sector. And then, you know, sort of from there, you know, all the jobs and deals and transactions that I worked on were really all focused around resources. So you kind of never know where you're, you're going to end up. And I think the other part of it, you know, growing up in Eastern Washington and spending, you know, most of my childhood and, and even a lot of the hobbies I have today around the outdoors really ultimately led to my interest in creating Cobalt 27 around this kind of green energy theme and finding ways to, you know, be part of the extractive industry's business, but also put it in context and use those resources to make, you know, the world a better place and a more green place. And so we can talk about that later with ESG and some of the kind of current trends. But it's funny when you look back in retrospect, how even from, you know, the very beginning, some of these things that interest you and that you pursue lead to where you are, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later. Oh, yeah. You know, I said it to you in an email. I think you're a, a contender for potentially the most interesting man in the world. I mean, it's not often you see <laughs> somebody go from Eastern Washington to Moscow. And I'm very curious to dive in there because what was your attraction to Russia? I'd love to expand on the subject of Russia and business in Russia and your deals there. So what was that attraction initially? You know, I think the initial attraction was actually Eastern Europe more broadly. So my last name is Milewski, which is a, a Polish last name. And my dad's family came from Poland on my grandfather's side. And on my grandmother's side, they came from Ukraine. And so that, even as a child, really kind of interested me. You know, in the 80s, I can remember my grandparents traveling to Eastern Europe and telling me about Poland. And so that sparked an interest. And, you know, when you go to university in the States and you want to speak a Slavic language, primary language you can learn is Russian at most universities. And so it was kind of the most widely spoken language in Eastern Europe. And it was also the one that I could learn and study at school. It also happens that if you think about, you know, the events of the fall of the Soviet Union, it was a major kind of headline news item at that time in the world. And so, you know, in addition to that family angle, just kind of the news flow around the fall of the Soviet Union and what was really uh, one of the most breathtaking transitions that's probably ever happened from communism to capitalism in a very brief period of time really captured my attention. Yeah, you know, I just finished a book by um, Marin Katusa called Colder War, where he really gets into a lot of the transition of the USSR into Russia and what is, you know, the Russian capitalist system now. The book's a little bit dated now, but really a good read to paint the picture there. But what was your experience like with that? Can you expand on seeing that market economy there unfold? I mean, there's some mega stories that happened in that time. Yeah, I would say, I think one, you know, Russia is heavily misrepresented in Western media. I think part of that is because a lot of the politicians and thought leaders, you know, until recently were really from a different generation. And so they grew up with the Cold War and communism. And this is in Canada, the United States and in Europe. And so I think it's been highly unfairly represented in the West. That's not to say it's perfect at all, but I think that people have a lot of misconceptions about Russia. And, you know, what I would say is that that transition happened, you know, in large part 
based off of some of these economists out of out of Harvard. And there's a great article called How Harvard Lost Russia. But you know, there's a bunch written on this. And this idea of voucher privatization, which came from mm-hmm. a small number of economists, meant that you know, broad swaths of the economy were first privatized. I'm oversimplifying it, but they're first privatized to the stockholders in some of these companies. And then those shares were later bought by a very small group of connected individuals to create these kind of mega companies. And so some of what's transpired since then, which is the unwinding in a sense, some of those transactions, uh, when you really understand how those companies came to be in the first place is not so negative. I think the other thing that is really important is that, you know, in that interim 10-year period after the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, there were a number of, you know, kind of gold deals and copper deals and oil deals, and they didn't all go well in Eastern Europe. And big promoter names like Robert Friedland and Manny Steinmetz, you know, these guys all had deals in Eastern Europe. Mm. And, you know, a lot of more kind of lesser known promoters had deals. And one of the observations I would have on the smaller deals, because these big deals that had national importance, oftentimes could have been, you know, expropriated. But on a smaller level, one of the things that Canadian promoters didn't realize was that Russian law and Russian regulation is very pedantic. And so, you know, if it says in line 600 CF that you need to have a report every third equinox of the moon needs to be filed, well, you better file it. And if you don't file it, you're going to find yourself in trouble. And so a lot of the problems that occurred, I think, got misconstrued as being something wrong with Russia when actually people weren't necessarily following the rules. I want to be clear. I'm not saying there weren't problems. I just think that it got misrepresented in the West that it's this awful place to do business when, in fact, a lot of times the people who are doing business there, they weren't necessarily following all of the different rules. And by the way, it was a challenge at that time to follow it. But I do think that, you know, when I look at Russia today, it's kind of two and a half times the size of of the U.S. for landmass. And there are huge numbers of interesting gold projects and copper projects. And I don't think you could raise nearly a penny for them right now. And in large part, that's because of the perception of the Canadian and Australian capital markets that you can't make money there. And I think that's probably wrong, but the market isn't prepared to fund or finance a deal in Russia, a junior deal in Russia at this time, I don't think. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, yeah, you know, the, our newspapers don't do much benefit to the foreign relations there, it seems. So when you speak about the pedantics and how the law works there, I find it interesting. For example, I have a friend who's a bankruptcy lawyer who's since in the last year moved to London to work on bankruptcy cases there. And he said that, you know, despite having the, a similar common law system, the way they operate in their law is so different from Canada. Now, I'd really, I'm really curious to get your take on Russian law and on Russian business and business dealings. How do they differ? Every country's different. What's it like in Russia? Well, I mean, the law has changed pretty dramatically. It's a civil code, which I think would be more similar to the French system than it would be to the British system. But a lot of that code looks very much like the corporate takeover laws in the UK. I mean, you know, a lot of the people that helped advise on these were Western lawyers. Obviously, you know, since that time, it's developed. I just mean to say that they're not still having consultants. This is maybe 10 years on. So I think when you're talking about like the Russian stock exchanges or dual listings, you know, there was a time around 2008, 2009, when people were listing in Russia on the RTS and then listing in, in London. You know, a lot of what we would consider basic corporate law, I think, is quite surprisingly similar. So I don't think that that's very differentiated. Now, that, of course, is a different period. If you go all the way back, if you go back to right after the fall of the Soviet Union, I mean, people were 
doing all kinds of crazy things around printing shares or holding tenders in Siberia, but not, you know, closing the airport so no one could show up. But, you know, this, mind you, is, you know, over 20 years removed now. But if you're talking about what it looks like today and has really looked like for over a decade, you know, the laws are very similar to, you know, poison pills and, and tender offers and takeovers are very similar to what you would anticipate in Western capital markets. So I think, I think that part of it has developed. I think if you look historically at Russian transactions because of the lack of certainty inside of the system, and this is universally true, I think, you know, except a lot in Africa, where you have ambiguity in a legal system, oftentimes relationships matter even more because you have to trust your counterparty because you may or may not be able to litigate it or the judge may or may not be able to be persuaded one way or the other outside of what's kind of on the, the four corners of the paper. And so I think in Russia, my observation would be, especially from those early days when I was there, you know, trust maybe mattered more heavily simply because you weren't relying on the legal system in the same way that you might in, say, a United States or a Britain. But today, I think it's evolved a lot. And I would just say that, and you know, while I haven't done a transaction in Russia in a long time now, I do think that people have this notion that it's somehow very different than the UK or the US. I would disagree with that. I think it's becoming much similar. I mean, the way that people use leverage and hedge, and and that's probably in part because now you have a generation of finance professionals and business professionals who worked at Goldman Sachs in London or went to Harvard or, you know, whatever it was. I see you've got a lot of that Western influence who came into an evolving market and really helped shape it. I mean, you have to say in a 20-year, 25-year period, it's quite remarkable at how fast things changed. And this, I would say, perhaps it's safe to say the stability of what it is now. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, there's been dramatic changes. And by the way, like, you know, once again, you know, I'm not defending Russia. I just think it, it should get a more even view in the West. If you look at Vladimir Putin, he is wildly popular. Like, you know, no matter what CNN wants to tell you, I mean, he is widely, widely liked across Russia and enjoys popularity numbers, which are probably far greater than Trudeau or Trump, right? And so... Yeah. I just think that there's this perception that he's not liked at home, which is incorrect. And by the way, when you cruise around Russia, you can go to google.com. You know, it's different than the great Chinese firewall. Information does flow freely there if you can read English or use one of the translators. So, you know, it's not as if the Russian government is able to manage information flow. And so that's kind of another, I think, I wouldn't say misunderstanding, but I don't think people fully appreciate that. And part of the reason, too, is, you know, a lot of the diaspora probably left Russia because had a grievance or they didn't like it. And so, you know, their voice is heard more loudly in the West. So I do think though, it would be possible for a junior mining company to go in there and if they knew how to operate and they followed the rules and they filed the reports and did what they're supposed to do, I do think it would be possible to operate. I don't think that that's outside of the realm of possibility. And in fact, I predict at some point, and it might be 10 years away, it might be 15 years away, it might be, you know, five years away, it might be tomorrow, you will see a big wave of junior financings into Russia simply because of the breadth of resource and also because in the Soviet Union, they drilled a lot. A lot of meters were drilled. And so if you wanted to go find projects that at least have some history and a starting point, you know, that would be a place to go. Interesting. Okay. If there's any rules of thumb you have, I mean, if you think about perhaps in Asia and China, you know, just something as simple as a handshake. You shake hands differently in Asia than you do in North America. What kind of things are like that for Russia? You know, I would say that 
you know, just like China, this is true of China where I've been trying to quite a bit. I think you just have to take time to know your partner. And I think that that's, you know, I think that's really important. And that's true whether you're dealing with a, a large cap publicly traded company in, in England, meaning a Russian company publicly traded on the LSE or just, you know, a private deal you're working on. I think you really need to take care to know your partner and that's through dinners and socializing as well. I think that's a pretty important part of doing business there. Hmm. No, if we can fast forward from your time in Russia and really where, I mean, it's interesting that you landed there, but I think that's what opened up the door to Cobalt 27 and to you now building into your, um, you know, your further reaching deals. Can you tell us about Cobalt 27 and what happened there? Yeah, give us the background and the, discuss that opportunity and what's come from it. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, after I left Russia, I went and worked at a hedge fund in New York and worked for a guy called James Passon, who ran a big global macro fund. And we invested globally in resources in Africa, you know, all over the world. You know, P&G had deals there. And I think that was interesting because, you know, it gave me a big perspective on a wide range of commodities and, and places and jurisdictions, right? I mean, we had stuff in the Congo and Rwanda and Nauru, you know, sort of P&G, you name it. And I think James had, had probably allocated that location. So I think transitioning away from Russia and just something more globally, more broadly with a heavy metals focus was pretty interesting and instrumental. And one of the reasons it was instrumental was because we dealt in minor metals, not all the time, but, you know, whether it was floor spar, beryllium or uranium, you know, at different points, we looked at those. And I think that kind of really, for me, crystallized my thinking around liquidity and the need to have liquidity and investing. And of course, these minor metals, when they get hot, you know, they can go up 10 times. And by the way, you know, they can crash just as fast. And so I think that was really the start of thinking about that. And from there, I went to um, a private equity fund called Paula Investments, which is based out of Switzerland, once again focused on mining and landed there and was there for years. And we started, you know, thinking about electrification and what that would mean. And this now has been years ago. And you know, we thought about nickel and copper and all those are relevant and we could talk about how copper is going to be massively impacted by electrification of the grid or we could talk about nickel and we will talk about nickel later but one that really caught my eye and the eye of the team really at the time was cobalt and the reason is because cobalt is critical to the electric vehicle lithium-ion battery and also a lot of the different types of battery storage batteries and so, you know, we began putting together a physical position. I remember the first memo was Cobalt, let's get physical. Like, it's kind of <laughs> funny. That was, that was the memo to the investment team to sort of kick it off and, and really explore Cobalt. And I think, you know, the first purchases were, might have only been in the few millions of dollars. I mean, it was really that small. So that was really the kind of catalyst to start thinking about it. And I can tell you on day one, when we bought that first metal, we were not thinking about, you know, creating a streaming and royalty company. That was really just figuring out how to play electrification. So, I mean, this was really your first deal as CEO, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Yeah, well, the deal, the Cobalt 27 started off, you know, I was working at Paula at the time. And I was really, we were putting it together as a position for Paula and as an investment to the investment committee. And so I didn't become the quote unquote CEO until later. So the strategy developed over time. And we kind of looked at Uranium Participation Corp, 
which has uranium, obviously, and having you know invested in uranium years earlier. And then we also looked at like a silver wheat and, and tried to figure out, you know, how could we combine that model and take this public and use physical metal to have leverage and create a balance sheet. And so it was this evolution over time as the physical position grew and as we kind of got to know other people in the industry, it kind of evolved over time into this spin out where we went and took it public and uh, I became the CEO. So that kind of happened over the course of time. It wasn't okay. kind of on day one. On day one, it was just a portfolio investment. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, what's you look at Bloomberg and Bloomberg Business Week, and one of the articles I'm seeing here is backed by a Russian billionaire. Anthony Malusky started stockpiling metal in 2015, and it carries on to talk about that, but perhaps not in the best light. Now, Cobalt 27 became, you know, it was a rocket ship for a while. And then things fell apart. And I think it took a lot of heat. You took a lot of heat. And perhaps the financial media dwelled on things that were easy to dwell on versus looking deeper in. I don't want that to be a leading question, but I want to hear your take on that. What happened? I mean, it's really straightforward. At the end of the day, whenever you buy any equity that's linked to the price of a commodity, it lives and dies by... The underlying commodity, cobalt went from $9 to $44 and back down to 13 And, you know, the equity share price reflected that. You know, if you look back at the perspectives, which is on CDAR, one of the things I'll always be sort of really proud of is Justin, my partner, and I, you know, we executed the business strategy. Like when you see in there, we're going to buy more physical. We bought more physical. We're going to do streams. We're going to buy streams, buy royalties. I mean, we actually executed that business plan to the T, which is very rare, as we both know. Most yeah, of the time yeah. in this industry, people don't do that. I mean, almost never. In fact, like I'm unaware of where people executed exactly on what they said. Yeah. I think where we ran into trouble was we raised money at, you know, peak cobalt price, you know, within a few dollars. And very shortly after we did that, the price of cobalt just really tanked and cratered. And as you would expect, along with it, the equity. And, you know, we didn't anticipate that. Obviously, Glencore, you had Ivan calling a $100 cobalt. He didn't, you know, publicly, he didn't predict that. So I think much of the story gets framed different ways, but the actual reality is that that share price was heavily linked to cobalt. And that drove it up and allowed us to raise money and do all the things that we were meant to do. And then on the way down, it created problems because people, you know, wanted to get out and they kept selling. And, you know, that was really uh, a surprise to everyone how quickly that share price rolled over and really the cobalt price rolled over. Hmm. Interesting. Now, for building this company from Cobalt 27, aside from commodity prices and, and you know, you're living and dying off of that, what would you have done differently with Cobalt? Is there anything that you would have done differently or any advice from your experience there that CEOs could benefit from? Well, I guess the question is, I mean, do I know everything I know now? Look, it depends on what point, you know, going at that time, looking forward, there was nothing you could do differently. I mean, the price was of Cobalt was going up. You were under extreme pressure from your shareholders to do streams and royalties. So I, I think forward looking, there wouldn't be really anything that you could advise because that was the world that you lived in. I would say looking back, you could say, oh, well, don't raise the money here or do this there, but that would be um, pretty challenging. I think one of the big observations is 
you know, and this has changed dramatically since the beginning of my career, is the duration of capital has materially changed. Mm. So very, very few investors actually have the ability to hold a story beyond 12 months, meaning they get paid on a 12-month basis or they're under pressure. Even some of the long-only guys are under pressure to review their performance on a 12-month basis. And I will tell you, without question, the stickiest money is retail money. Mm. I mean, there is no question in my mind that people who retail folks are actually the money that sticks around the longest by a long shot. And that's not a criticism. It's just like an acknowledgement of a complete change since the financial crisis in hedge funds. So, you know, there are very, very few hedge funds like Firebird and pools of capital like that left. And instead, you have a lot of folks like Citadel and Millennial, Millennium, excuse me, who are portfolio managers on a platform that's controlled by some overriding, you know, risk department and who can kind of call and pull back money or give money based on the market. And so, you know, they don't even necessarily control how long or how large of a position that they can hold in you. And so I think one of the things I would just kind of, you know, say to management is really think about that because it's going to impact your business. So, you know, when the price of Cobalt 27 rolls over, you have furious shareholders who can't hold the stock. I mean, they don't want to hold the stock any longer. And so, They're trying to get you to do all sorts of different things which are not in line with creating long-term value. And so I would just say, you know, if you're able in a financing to take more retail and to try to think about who those people are that are coming in, I would suggest doing it. Because like right now, gold, for instance, is pretty hot. People are raising money. You know, the fast money will come in and just know the fast money is not going to be there. If if gold goes back down to 1200, (laughs) all that money is going to want to exit. They're going to put huge pressure on you. And so while intellectually you kind of know, or at least, you know, you see these big trends towards passive investing and they can't participate in placements and, and you see fewer and fewer kind of active uh, managers, you kind of intellectually, you understand that this is true and you see that the pools of capital are shorter in duration just because of that, that's what they are. But when I think you live and breathe that pressure, I think it's different. And if you're an executive at a company and you're able to think about, that capital and where it's coming from, I would really try to align yourself with people who can sit through a bump in the price of gold or copper or whatever it is, right? And I would say there's actually a a really interesting thing about Cobalt 27, which, you know, Paula Investments, you know, they were that long-term capital. I think no one ever noted that Hmm. those guys participated in every single financing. So they were down as much as anyone. And, And I would also note, you know, people could have bid up the price and bid them out, right? In other words, shareholders could have stepped up and bought more stock and then priced Paul out of the deal. And they didn't do that. And in fact, overwhelmingly shareholders voted for the deal. And so I think some of those narratives that got spun around Cobalt 27 even kind of didn't really fully appreciate like the changes in the capital markets. And in part, we're really you know, it was led by in particular one group. And I think that group was just trying to extract maximum value. And then the financial press reacts to that and writes these stories and really misses the point in a lot of cases because overwhelmingly shareholders vote for this transaction in the end, right? Yeah, they certainly aren't uh, writing any of the points that you've just mentioned now. Yeah, I appreciate it. Which are all factual. I mean, you can actually go and look. I mean, this is all on CDAR. This is, you know, it's not like my opinion either. It's, it's very factual. And so, I mean, setting Cobalt 27 aside, though, it's just a broader observation on the state of, of capital markets that I would even observe, like take gold today, you know, I mean, cause I invest as well, right? Like I take 
part of these placements from time to time. What I see is at the very top end of the market, the big end of the market, you know, they have access to debt markets, capital markets, and they're very big and liquid. And so generalists will play there. And then at the very bottom of the market, you know, I want to raise 2 million or 5 million or $10 million, whatever that number is, retail is playing. But if you go into the middle of the market, like say, you know, you want to raise 50 or 80 million, you know, fine. There've been a couple examples in really specific situations with specific share registers, but like that whole middle market investor, you know, the guys and gals that get you from a hundred million market cap to a billion market cap where the generals can come in, I think it's completely gone and it doesn't exist. And it did exist when I started my career. And I don't think we've figured out kind of how to bridge it. You know, streaming and royalty companies have done a good job. I would also say, you know, funds like Orion have done a good job, but all those things still require equity. And so as it pertains to mining and metals, I think that the capital market structure is still, I don't want to call it broken, but I don't know if it's functioning in an efficient manner. It's definitely changed over the years. And, you know, I want to step back to something because in the previous call you and I did, we started going down a vein of interest on digital marketing and engaging, as you say, that the stickiest money being retail. Now, with that, I mean, they play such a crucial role in the market environment we have. Now, tell us about digital marketing from your view. And yeah, so, yeah, no, no. So, yeah, so first of all, I'm a huge believer in it. And I think we got to like identify something. Digital marketing and scam promos in Vancouver are not the same thing. <laughs> like, okay, yeah. You know, and I, I actually think that 99% of mining CEOs don't understand the difference. I think that in their mind, you know, it's some guy paying a couple hundred grand promo and like trying to, I, you know, I don't even know what those guys do, but I, it's, it is not that thing that most mining executives think it is. Instead, you know, digital marketing, which is extremely powerful, is creating an audience and reaching out to an audience in a way that's never been possible before to mining executives. Like, here's how I think about it. So you run gold company X. You can buy a business class ticket, because I know you will, fly to Zurich, there's 10 grand, stay at a hotel, maybe it's $300 a night. So, you know, buy some food and then pay some guy to take you around a couple thousand dollars a day, probably. And then on top of that, you know, pay for some dinner where you have 15 people in the audience, 20 people in the audience. So, you know, if we add all that up, you might be talking about $30,000, right? To reach out to 15 or 20 people, you know, kind of a high net worth retail guys and gals. At best, you know, maybe you get $20,000 worth of buying into your stock. Mm-hmm. Or you can you know, run Google AdWords, have a sophisticated digital marketing campaign. And for that same budget, you know, maybe you can reach half a million people or a million people. And the, you know, the, the law of averages is such that realistically, for the same amount of money, you're going to get more buying into your stock, right? Because maybe one person out of 15 in that meeting buys, well, if you reach out for the same amount of money to half a million people, a million people, you're definitely going to get more buying. Now, my observation on digital marketing is you can't fight the tape. So if the commodity is rolling over, you might be able to arrest the decline. And if, by the way, gold is happening, you can accelerate it, but you can only accentuate the trend. And, you know, we did a tremendous amount of digital marketing in Cobalt 27 and, and we've started doing it in Conic Metals and we've used Digital 257 
I um, wanted to I wanted to Ty- put a plug in for Dylan and Tyler. <laughs> yeah, they're, Dylan uh, and Tyler are outstanding company. Yeah, they are amazing. And you know, you know what I like about them is they're not doing any of the scammy stuff. They're doing like the real Google AdWords. You know, they're delivering and like I'll give you an example. So let's say I write a, an article on nickel. I don't know, just conic metals, right? So I write an article on nickel, it gets published somewhere. I can go into my Twitter account and I can say, I want people in Toronto, Vancouver, or in Canada, pick your spot, or in Canada and New York. You know, you can be very specific between the ages of 30 and 50 who have looked at these type of ads. I want them to see this article. So there's a huge science as to how you create this funnel to see your content. And I think, you know, this is not panacea. It's not the only thing that you're going to do going forward. It's not the only way you're going to market going forward. But I do think that creating an audience among interested people is easier and less expensive than it's ever been if properly done through the use of of digital marketing. And I, I think, you know, in particular for executives out there, who don't understand it or think they understand it, you know, call up Dylan and and Tyler and those guys know what they're doing. I think the other thing I would really caution managers about is content. So across Canada, you know, there are a handful of firms who will basically say to you, we're going to charge you 40 grand a month. I'm making up a number, but big numbers. And we're going to create this content for you. And we're going to do all this for you. I don't believe that works. I'll tell you why. I don't think anybody can create mass content for your deal and your story like yourself. Having a 26-year-old kid working across seven companies creating content, I think is nonsense. And so, and I think this kind of comes back to, you know, executives not being sophisticated around this yet. Instead, to me, what you got to do is you get somebody like the digital guys going and you're working with them and then you're creating your content, your IR person's creating the content And that way, your messaging, with the help of whoever is assisting you, your messaging is getting out there. And I think that's another one of the big hangups I see is people are selling content and everyone thinks digital marketing is so expensive. And that's because you're paying for your digital marketer to create all this content. I don't think that's the most effective way because no one can tell your story for your deal like your team. Can I expand on a couple of things there? I think I really like that you're pointing out that there's a lot of guys out there who say, oh, okay, we can promote you. We'll do some digital stuff, blah, blah, blah. But you're going to have to write us a check for 100, 200, 300,000 bucks. And I mean, that's been floating around House Street, if you will, for some time now. And it's very different from taking a sophisticated, in your words, scientific approach to reaching investors across the spectrum of wealth, if you ask me. I mean, you can reach high net and target into high net investors and you might not know their exact names or their bank accounts, but they'll start to see the information you want to put out. So I think there is a scientific approach here that executives have to start to embrace. And I'm going to double down and definitely say that my first meeting with the gents at Digital 257 were, they were one of the first group that actually was saying what needed to be said. They explained how the system works and how it will take time, but it builds the credibility within front of that retail investor. And that's huge when you do it properly. And now as a final piece, when you talk about content, something that I see is that I really believe executives of companies need to start coming forward and putting themselves as humans as part of the company and not hiding behind the black and white press release. And when it comes down to it, I don't care if you're the biggest fund in the world, you're investing in the humans that are there. And we now have an incredible opportunity 
to present the humanity behind the companies and the passion that's driving that company forward as part of the content. Absolutely. And by the way, if you're an executive and some firm is trying to tell you, well, we're going to charge you 20 grand a month to manage your Google AdWords, like this is insane, right? Like you should be able to see like what the management cost is of that. Not just Google, there's Bing AdWords, there's a bunch of them, but you should be able to see for only you know, a relatively small amount of money. And then you should be able to actually have transparency. So I spent $10,000 on ads. You should be able to see that that $10,000 actually went into buying ads. And I can tell you right now, your digital marketer can give you a receipt for that. So I think that people are being taken advantage of a little bit because they don't understand it. And I totally agree that the outreach is amazing across wealth categories. The other part of this, which I think is important, and I don't know if people appreciate this, is you know, oh, we got a big press release next Wednesday. Let's hit it. Like, it doesn't work like that. This is marketing 101. Mm. You know, you need to define your audience, what you perceive as your audience. And then you need to like be there regularly because, you know, even in the down parts of the cycle, you create that brand awareness, that deal awareness. And then, you know, when it comes around, you're front of mind. So it's the same old story with marketing. What I want to say is you still have to actually apply those principles to digital marketing as well. It's not a magic trick whiz bang thing that just fixes all your problems. Instead, it's a tool to really figure out this market and get in front of them in a less expensive way. Thanks for coming out and putting your credibility behind this because I mean, this is something that I think every CEO needs to start to adopt and realize that it's a powerful tool. And yeah, we're at a time where it can really help change companies, but it does take a long-term approach. Yeah, I don't think people like appreciate even the power of it. You know, if you know, I'll give you an example. So, and you know this, but I don't know if all the listeners know this. You know, if someone Google something, if you are prepared to pay enough, you can attach yourself to name your big gold company. So when you Google that gold company, you're one of the ads that comes up. Or you know, as you know, once someone's clicked on your website and they have the cookie, you know they're going through the internet seeing advertising. So I, I guess it's a longer conversation, but I don't even think that a lot of the executives realize like the power of this digital marketing and how it could transform their business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hopefully the listeners here, the executive can take this and perhaps open their mind to the potential there because it's going to change the capital markets for sure. What I want to do, I just want to be respectful of your time, but I wanted to bring it back to Cobalt and Cobalt 27 and now Conic Metals and what you're doing there. Because can you explain for us the transition of the deal there and what Conic is now and what's going on? Sure. So, I mean, Conic Metals is really an intermediate nickel producer. So, you know, it owns, you know, roughly 8% of the Ramu joint venture, which is a big nickel cobalt producing mine in P&G. It's, you know, one of the most important nickel cobalt mines in the world. The product that it mines and then processes goes straight into into batteries, among other, among other uses. In addition, we have a royalty over Turnigan. Turnigan is Giga's project. It's a super interesting project. We also have a big equity position in it. You know, it's one of the few development assets in North America that is not H-Pile, it's a sulfide, which means the technology is very well known, so you can actually kind of get your head around the CapEx. You know, they have carbon sequestration there. The guys are moving that forward. So that's really interesting. Then we have another royalty on Dumont. Dumont is another interesting project. 
similar size and scale to Turnigan. And then we have a handful of royalties. So when I look at it, you know, it's really a company that gives investors material leverage. In fact, I think it's probably the only investable nickel pure play on the TSX or TSXV for that matter, simply because ShareIt has a lot of issues with Cuba and a lot of U.S. investors can't own ShareIt. So I think it's probably the only other nickel producer that I can think of off the top of my head that's a pure play. And you know what you see in these lithium-ion batteries is it's a nickel-manganese-cobalt battery that goes into the electric vehicle battery and also a lot of the stationary batteries for the solar roofs and different things. And over time, that battery has transitioned away from cobalt and into nickel. And that transition and trend is only kind of becoming more apparent and more expedited. And so, you know, thinking about how to play that electric vehicle adoption, thinking about, you know, kind of these big shifts that are underway. Nickel is one of those ways, and in particular, class one nickel, which is what, you know, we're producing nickel or what our projects, most of our projects are going to produce. It gives you huge leverage to not only the nickel price, but also to that transition. And, you know, we'll be in a position, you know, in the next year and a half, year, year and a half, whatever it is, maybe a little longer to pay dividend or buy back shares. And so it's really exciting. Right now, the market cap's about $30 million is what I saw. Is that correct? Yeah, it's kind of a joke. I mean, the joint venture asset alone before we bought it, when it traded in Australia, was almost $100 million. So I don't know, you know, probably there's a few reasons for that. One is obviously nickel is better known on the Australian Stock Exchange, or there's just an element of, of a community there. I think, two, this was a spinoff from Cobalt 27. And so, you know, at the end, you had a lot of ARBs and different folks like that in there. And so, you know, maybe that hasn't recirculated yet. Maybe the stock hasn't recirculated yet. But so, can you expand yeah, on that? Because you've got a lot of ARBs, and that's got an impact. Can you expand on that? I don't know that they're still in the stock, but maybe at the end of the Cobalt Twenty Seven deal, when Paula was making a second bid, a higher bid, and then there was another company who was kind of looking at it, and all these things were happening. ARB investors were kind of coming in, trying to speculate about what may or may not be the bump. And could they make money if they buy it at this price and then get cash at that price? So you kind of don't know what a lot of the share register looks like post deal. And so speculate that maybe that, you know, maybe it's something just as simple as the market doesn't know the assets yet. And we haven't had a chance to really tell that story until now where we're out, you know, we're going to go to the BMO conference. We were in Vancouver last week and really just try to get that story out. But it's ridiculous at this market cap in a worse nickel market. With less assets, the market cap was, uh, you know, kind of a couple times higher than here. Hmm. Interesting. With that, you know, something actually not with that specifically, but earlier you mentioned a big move towards ESG and environmental stewardship and so on. Can you speak to that? What's the nature of the market? And is this becoming more powerful? And how does this affect companies financially and long term? Well, it's critical. I think it's, you know, if, if you look at all the big mining companies, I think they've all got the message that it's incumbent upon them to do this. And in fact, if they don't do it, they're going to be forced to do it because, you know, whether it's BlackRock with ESG or and all these pools of capital are starting to require you that ESG principles are applied into their investments. So I think there's a bunch of levels. You know, there's simple things like Goldman's announcement within the last couple of days that they won't IPO a company with an all-male board. Well, that's, that's an ESG, kind of an ESG principle. There is kind of the level of, 
local relations with your project. And then the level of, you know, what type of technology you're using, what are your tailings. So there's a bunch of different ways that it's going to impact us. You know, so there's the operational kind of flow through there. There's the finance side. And then, by the way, you know, there's the other side of it, which is kind of the end market. If you're Apple, you know, for instance, or Tesla, you probably are going to start to care more and more about ethical sourcing. You know, is your cobalt ethical? Is it child labor? You know, where these materials come from? And are we going to buy it if it's not ethically sourced? So, you know, it's going to impact every single aspect of the mining business. And if you don't adhere to ESG principles, which at this point, there's not one ESG body. There's a bunch of different consultants out there and a bunch of different people doing different things. But I think this will get refined in the coming years. You will not be financeable and your market cap will lag if you're already public, if you are unable to kind of put forward your company's plan to follow ESG principles, which this is all going to evolve over time. But I think that's where we're going to come to. And in fact, you know, rating agencies have gotten into the game with S&P acquiring an ESG rating agency. And what you're going to see is all these companies are going to have ratings if they don't already, and they're going to start reconfiguring their corporate governance and corporate structures to really try to capture a rating that reflects what their investors want. So it's kind of circular, but it's going to become critical. Hmm. Now, earlier on in our, when we just started off our interview, you mentioned that you're an outdoors kind of guy. You like to be in nature with that. I mean, the environment is obviously an important part of your hobbies, your pastime there. When you compare that to mining, and the ESG work that's going on there, I can see why you would argue for this. But if we were to look at a, you know, for example, if you wanted to talk about carbon and carbon emissions and being taxed on those where it puts us as potentially having a handicap in North America and Europe against other countries like China who isn't bearing down on carbon emissions, how does ESG impact North American mining companies or anybody who's being rated by these agencies. Is it the kind of thing that's a handicap that we're going to have to live with? Is this a North American only thing or is this global? No, no. So your question presupposes a false premise. China is the global leader in electric vehicle adoption. They are the global leader in transforming this industry. We are where we are today because of Elon Musk and China, (laughs) not the US government, surely not the Canadian government and certainly not the European government. So I would say it's not true that they're not driving carbon emission change. You know, they're leading the world right now, like by a wide margin. They're investing in mines. What governments in the West are investing in copper mines right now or in cobalt mines? Like, I can't think of a single one. Why are they doing it? It's because they want to control the supply chain. So, look, they're not perfect, but I will tell you that, you know, China should be getting far more credit for the service they're doing the world right now by transforming the automotive industry and really pushing an electric vehicle agenda. That's not to say they're perfect and that, that they don't uh, you know, spew a lot of carbon, but it would definitely be a false narrative to say that China is not actually a huge driver of some of these changes for the better. And how do North American mining companies benefit? Well, I think they benefit from a higher commodity price. I mean, I think that when cobalt and nickel and copper cost more because you know, the adoption rate of electric vehicles in China is 50%. Well, like, I think that's great. So it is more complicated than that because, you know, ESG is felt at a bunch of different levels. And even within an organization, there's different aspects of ESG. But it would be very much a false narrative to say, 
oh, well, China's going to somehow inordinately benefit from this because the guys in the West you know, like, aren't playing by the same rules or something like that. Okay, interesting. I think people completely misread China altogether. And, you know, even I, I talk with bankers sometimes who say, oh, we have this big Chinese presence. We're talking to this company. I'm like, well, I was just there and you were talking to some junior guy. I think <laughs> that within our industry, there's a very low level read into China with the exception of a few individuals who, who I think have cracked that nut. And I would just say that the transformation, which is underway in China, is unprecedented. It's akin to an industrial evolution. You know, the Chinese government has their own sets of pressures, and one of those sets of pressures is the environment and is the air that people breathe. And they are responsive to their citizens, and they are massively responsive right now in the way of developing electric vehicles, but not just electric vehicles, hydrogen fuel cell for industrial use and, you know, car-free zones. So, you know, they're able to move at a pace and in a way just because of the style of government that they have that is unprecedented and is not being done in the West. Wow. Yeah. I know I opened up a can of worms with that question there. And I think it's a very, you know, a topic we could talk for a long time about, but I think you make a really good point there that, well, one, I think China is misunderstood and I would be on the side of misunderstanding. I'm not going to hide from saying that. I definitely have a lot to learn there, but you do make a point there as well with the way the government's structured, they can move fast. And as what I'm hearing, you're saying they're being responsive to the citizens. And with that, I guess you're going to see the changes and they can be very positive. So interesting topic. I do want to be respectful of your time though, Anthony, as we're hitting the top of the hour here. Can I wrap this up by asking uh, maybe any final advice for CEOs, whether it be in the mining space or any public market space when they're operating their companies, any advice for them on how to do things better, how to, how to ultimately achieve their goals? I mean, you've checked some big milestones off in your career. What could you say? You know, I think one of the observations I have is on investment banking and the fickle nature of it, but people moving suits and, you know, banks entering and exiting, you know, the investment banking business and mining. And I think one of the things an executive can do is really develop a couple different investment banking relationships with specific bankers so that, you know, you know and trust those bankers and you can get good advice notwithstanding over time as they move through the different banks. So when it's your moment and the financing is there or the deal is there, you, know, you can really feel comfortable in that advice. And I think a lot of executives don't properly use the street, I think, for whatever reason. And so I think that one of the ways you can do that is really getting to know a couple bankers at different banks that you trust, that you can really rely on as advisors uh, which is common in other industries, but but uh, you know it's not as common, I think, in, in our industry. So I think that's one thing. I think the other thing is, you know, you got to figure out this digital marketing thing. You know, I'm sure there's other firms, but Dylan and Tyler are great. You know, you reach out to them, or you, depending on who you are, you reach out to me, and I'm happy to kind of point you in the right direction. So I think that's a really a transformative moment for um, for our industry. That's awesome. And how can listeners follow your work and watch what you're doing? You can follow me on Twitter and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Those are two easy places. A lot of it, I, mean, I write a lot of articles and I always end up tweeting those out on those outlets. Awesome. Okay. Well, I'll, uh, I'll be sure to put the notes or put links in the show notes. And overall, I really appreciate you taking the time. This was a really informative interview. It's the kind of thing I know we could go on for hours, but we got to keep it within time. So Anthony, thanks so much for doing this. Okay. Thanks a lot, bud. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. 
You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.